The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Have you ever felt like you're... Oh, I forgot. There's some music. <laughs> Guess what's coming? Have you ever felt like there's something missing from our world? Like we're waiting for something? There's something Bonnie Tyler might be able to tell us we need... <laughs> Tell us, Bonnie. Channel our uncertainty and ennui and frustrations and tell us what we're looking for. Holding out for a hero. What kind of hero? Where do our ideas of hero come from? How have they changed in the last thousand years or so? I'm Jack Wilson. This is the History of Literature. Welcome to the show. And that was Bonnie Tyler singing a song from the movie Footloose. The lyrics are interesting from a Beowulfian perspective. We're talking about Beowulf today. If Beowulf stands for anything, it's that a... Hero should be a king. You should make your hero a king, and a king should be a hero. The strongest should be your leader. That's natural. The strongest and bravest, with a slight nod to being good, being good to one's people. That's the context of Beowulf, which was written in around 850 AD and was looking back several centuries to a lost pagan era. Although it's famously the first literary masterpiece written in English, the first one that survived, it's really about Scandinavia, Sweden, Denmark, the world of kings called ring givers, traveling on ships to save the day. This is the world of the mead hall, with mead being a fermented beverage, if you've never had it, and the mead hall being a gathering place, if you've never been to one. <laughs> I don't know where you would have. Where all in the meat hall, all the warriors and general citizens meet to share in the king's hospitality. People will feast and celebrate. Poets tell stories of the heroes of a bygone era. And outside, demons lurk. They creep around. Demons, monsters, evil spirits. They're out there in the shadows, in the mists, in the darkness, waiting smoldering with anger sometimes, anger, jealousy, resentment. Sometimes they're just evil for evil's sake. And the humans, some of whom are almost superhuman, some of whom have access to some form of magic, they're inside the mead hall, sometimes living it up, ignoring the danger. 
sometimes afraid. Sometimes getting ready to do battle. I like the night in Beowulf, where Beowulf agrees to face the monster the next day, and everyone is so pleased that the hero is going to do it, going to take care of business, that they all have a big celebration. (laughs) The night before. That's kind of a lot of pressure, right? That's how it reads. It gives us the pressure of it, the dramatic tension, the tension of the hero who's made a promise, the confidence that everyone has placed in him, and the party to celebrate. There's certain will be a victory. How awful it would be if the hero went out the next day and lost the battle and died when they all had so much confidence in him the night before. As a narrative technique, it raises the stakes. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's talk about heroes first. Bonnie Tyler wants a hero. She was already famous for her torch song, Total Eclipse of the Heart, which still has a kind of weird power over me, like so many songs from the 80s. She was famous for that song when the producers of Footloose came calling. They had a song for her and an idea for a video that takes place on the Grand Canyon and involves evil cowboys and good cowboys. (laughs) And she said, where do I sign? (laughs) Here were the first lyrics. Here's Here's how the song opens. You've heard this. I just played it for you. Where have all the good men gone? And where are all the gods? Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? This song has been used and reused, sung and resung. It was in Shrek. A hero. Well, what do you want from your hero? What do you want from your man? Bonnie Tyler says, he's got to be strong and he's got to be fast and he's got to be fresh from the fight. That could be Beowulf. That could be describing our hero today, Beowulf. He's got to be larger than life. (laughs) Actually, that part of the song goes, he's got to be larger than life. Larger than life. That's Beowulf 2, Larger Than Life. But with a little spoiler alert, I think our... And I'm not spoiling Beowulf, I'm spoiling this podcast episode. So we could call it foreshadowing. I think our concept of the hero has changed quite a bit. And our concept of Beowulf, the poem, has changed. And in some ways, maybe it should change even more. I have a few thought experiments I want to roll out for you. We'll get into all of that today. Beowulf on the History of Literature. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. 
Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Hello. Welcome to the show. I want to start by reading an email to you, an incredible email I received from a listener. Dear Jack, I hope this email finds you well. I am the fiancé of the Lusty Lizard Lover listener, (laughs) who you referred to a couple of weeks ago on the show. As you read on the air, he mentioned that he references your lizard play every time I'm cold which is completely accurate. What he didn't mention was the much larger role that your podcast played in our relationship. We had been broken up for a few months after having been together when he texted me out of the blue to check out this podcast that I would like called The History of Literature. (laughs) Wow. Goes on. I scrolled through the feed chose the episode Great Literary Endings to start with, and texted him back that I liked it. Thus started a conversation about you, the host. (laughs) Oh, I can only imagine. Who is this? (laughs) Who is this crazy person? (laughs) Started a conversation about you, the host, and the next episode I listened to, the one on Hamlet. We met up again that night and have been together ever since and got engaged in the meantime. Oh, boy. Oh. Is that not the best? I I can hardly believe it. Oh, I just can't believe it. Bonding over this little podcast. She says, for that, I will be eternally grateful to you and the history of literature. But my gratitude is for more than the role you played in my relationship, however valuable that was. I love your show and for how you're able to show the greatness and relevance of both ancient and modern literature. I'll be a lifelong fan. My infinite thanks, Angela. P.S. I'm still working through the back catalog. I've been skipping around and just finished your episodes on tragedy. I was a philosophy major and therefore loved the Nietzsche analysis. I would love even more philosophy as literature episodes. Perhaps a humble suggestion of an episode on Emerson. Can you believe that? An episode on Emerson? Of course we'll do that. Of course. After an email like that, (laughs) they're engaged. True love. I just can't believe I played a part in that relationship. Of course we'll do an episode on Emerson. See? All those haters out there, everyone who attacks the show, you can be quiet for a moment, just for one moment. Okay, we're doing something positive here. We're helping. We're helping relationships. Here's the evidence. Of course we'll do an episode on Emerson. If you get engaged, thanks in some part to the show, we will take your request and do an episode on cereal boxes if a fiancé wanted me to. 
Congratulations to the two of you, and thank you for letting me know. The infinite thanks are all mine. A quick word to our listeners in Texas and for everyone who has friends and family in Texas. Our thoughts and prayers are with you. Man, what a horrendous storm. Just a relentless natural disaster. Hang in there. I hope you all get through this safe and sound. And we, the rest of us here in America and the world, can all help you to rebuild. So, back to heroes and our world of Beowulf. Beowulf is about 3,000 lines written in Old English. I don't read Old English, but luckily, I don't have to. The translation by Seamus Heaney is one of the greatest translations I have ever read. Heaney understands the sound of words, the thump and rhythm and bluntness of the poem, the heft of the world's. He himself, of course, was an amazing poet, a Nobel Prize winner, and his translation of Beowulf has to count as among his greatest works. We talked about Seamus Heaney with Professor Bill. You can find that episode. We were talking about dad poetry. We should do more on Seamus Heaney. Really a fantastic Irish poet. Let's remember that Old English is the language of the Anglo-Saxons. It's Germanic in its roots. What does that mean? What does that mean? Take English today and strip out all the Latinisms, all the Latinate polysyllabic words, all the words that come from Greek or Latin, and even today have an air of refinement or sophistication. Words like sophistication, for example, which comes from the Greek. Anglo-Saxon words aren't like that. They're words like body, and bold, and boat, deep, and death, and devil, and dust. Land is an Anglo-Saxon word, and love, and life, and friendship. You can sense a, a whole way of life in those words. I might be imagining this, but there might be more to it than that, than just my Invention. This is the Middle Ages we're talking about, a simpler time with simple professions. A blacksmith, a cobbler, a warrior, peasant living. You are born, you live hard, you work, you worship, you die. A blow to the head might spill your blood. Nothing fancy there, just essential. Except essential isn't one of the words you'd use. What would you use? Rooted, maybe. Grounded. Earthy. In the Middle Ages, Italians had two orecchios and okies. <laughs> Anglo-Saxons had ears and eyes. That's the wonderful part of Beowulf. And in fact, I would argue that the language is the best legacy of the entire manuscript. The Anglo-Saxon language, getting that glimpse of what the language was from a thousand years ago that tells us about the people, right? Hard to avoid that conclusion, although I called it my imagination. We don't really know, but it does seem like there are people who are pounding iron against iron, eating, drinking, living, fighting, loving. 
The manuscript, by the way, is a kind of a miracle. There's nothing like it in English for a couple of centuries on either side. Only one manuscript survived, and that one nearly burned in a fire. Like some of our other epic poems, Gilgamesh and the works of Homer, things we've looked at a long time ago. It's probably oral for a while before being written down by a poet who added his or her own invention and creativity and imaginative touches, some flourishes, some compilation. We don't know exactly when this occurred. Estimates are that it was composed around 850 AD, but it's looking back to an earlier time, a time completely shrouded in mists and darkness. Hard for us to see it, to see the society distinctly, which in some ways is a bit strange. That's why the Middle Ages used to be called the Dark Ages. That's why it's so strange. It's one thing to go back to Gilgamesh, but it's another thing to go back to 850 AD. This is after the Greece of Pericles and Plato, the Rome of Virgil and Cicero. All that is so vivid for us. It's so bright. It's strange to see a great work of literature appear to be so ancient. It's it's hard to remember sometimes that this isn't as ancient as Gilgamesh. But that's how we need to read it. Like Gilgamesh, it gives us a few clues about the world that the people lived in. It asks us to fill in the gaps of what the people might be thinking. I always have this odd feeling that I I think of the Neanderthals, a pre-literate people, and I wish we had a great epic poem from people like that. I would give my house a few scraps of poetry from the Neanderthals. Maybe that would finally allow me to stop having those dreams where I'm on a savanna and <laughs> some Neanderthals are wandering around nearby and we're communicating in a disconcertingly human-like way. I'm talking, they're grunting, and we're staring at each other's eyes. They're as frightened as I am. <laughs> What's strange about Beowulf is that it's late in history, not that it's early. We've already had Gilgamesh and Homer. We've had Socrates and Plato. We've had the Bible, both Old and New Testament. And in fact, the poet is clearly familiar with the Bible. There's a psychological depth and richness in all those works, including the Bible, that are just not there in Beowulf. There's some psychology, but it's not particularly subtle or refined. Or complex. It's more like Gilgamesh. You want your king to be strong. You want him also to be humble. Or at least to be able to back up his boasting. You want him to be generous in giving out rings. And if a really strong guy comes along, you want him to kill monsters and then become king. <laughs> Great for society thousands. In fact, I would argue Gilgamesh has a deeper psychology than Beowulf. I don't know if I'm ruffling any feathers by saying that, but I found it to be richer in that sense. There's all of the Gilgamesh and his friend, Gilgamesh and his fears. This is after Greece and Rome, Beowulf. And yes, these were people who overran the Roman Empire. It's not as if we expect them to have absorbed everything or tried to imitate them, but 
I don't know how to put this exactly. I like the language of Beowulf, but I find the ideas to be somewhat backwards, dull. It's curious. Let me say a few things I do like first. As I mentioned, the language is incredible, even though I only read it in translation. I love reading the stripped-down poetry of Seamus Heaney. Here's how it opens, for example. So, the spear Danes in days gone by and the kings who ruled them had courage and greatness. We have heard of those princes' heroic campaigns. There was Shield Sheafson, scourge of many tribes, a wrecker of mead benches, rampaging among foes. This terror of the hall troops had come far. A foundling to start with, he would flourish later on as his powers waxed and his worth was proved. In the end, each clan on the outlying coasts beyond the whale road had to yield to him and begin to pay tribute. That was one good king. Hmm. I love that. I love the way the narrator concludes that. Now that was a good king. Simple. Forceful. There's another aspect of Beowulf that I love that's hinted at in those lines, which is that the poet is nostalgic, even melancholy, for the bygone era. There's a whole layer of narration where the poet describes the past, the pagan past, and discusses the new world with Christianity coming into it, and it's clear that he recognizes that Christianity is here to stay and is true and right and good and all that. He believes it. And yet, he can't help feeling a fondness for the centuries when heroes arrived at the Mead Hall and demons swirled around outside and brave people did heroic feats. I don't mean to spoil anything here, but a monster is defeated by the hero, grabbing his arm in a kind of death grip. And the monster grabs him back and the two forces struggle until the man finally rips the arm from the monster, shoulder to hand, sinews and all. That's our man, Beowulf. That's our hero. That's the kind of thing he does. Why strength? Why brute strength and courage? Obviously, it's a world where those things are at a premium. Life is hard. The Romans had to be defeated and driven out after all. And after that, there were forests to be tamed. Forests full of wild beasts. Seas to be crossed. Neighbors to be fought. I have a private theory that the armor was so heavy that the people valued the strongest of men because only the strongest of men could still move around. Beowulf even brags about being able to swim in his armor. <laughs> have you ever worn armor? Have you ever put it on, tried it on? It's so heavy for most of us. But it's necessary to have on if someone is swinging at you with a sword. They charge you with a battle axe. You want to have your your chainmail on. You can't just wear light stuff. You can't just put on some foil. You'll be cut to ribbons. And you'll be shredded as well. So you have to wear it of a certain thickness, certain heaviness. But only the big and strong can really move around. That's my guess. Not just the big and strong because they're big and strong. It's that you had a bunch of little guys wearing heavy armor, and they couldn't see very well because their helmets were sagging over their eyes, and they couldn't move their arms and legs very well, and they were slow and clumsy, 
and they couldn't wait to get back to the mead hall where they could take a few things off, sit down on a bench and sing songs and cheer and pretend that they weren't actually as ineffective as they were once they got outside in their big clunky armor. And so if someone came and could actually wear that armor, someone in great shape, someone big enough, big shoulders, strong, someone with the frame that could support the armor, wear it like clothes, they were not just strong, but capable, athletic, coordinated, swift. They could actually swing a sword and swing it again and and aim it and hit their target. Of course, they'd conquer everyone. They could move. That's just my theory. It's not really supported by the text. The text just has Beowulf with the grip of 30 men. Strong grip, like a strong handshake. My other theory, which a lot of people have, is that the monsters are metaphors, as they would have to be. (laughs) Right? We're not imagining... The Roman Empire coming and going, and then after that, monsters appearing in Great Britain. I don't know. Maybe. 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 Am I insulting anyone? Is there anyone out there who believes that there were monsters? I don't know. I think they're metaphors. Tell us about what kind of heaven and hell is imagined by the people who are doing the imagining. What's the worst thing that can happen to you in the Middle Ages? Being lost and alone and in the forest, maybe? You can look at the mead halls and say that the inside was not all that secure and the forces outside, whether that's nature or the barbarians at the gate, that the people inside needed to know that their king had their back, so to speak, that the strongest of individuals in the society could protect that society against all of those dangerous outside forces. We don't have that today. Who are our leaders? Who do we admire? Not for, not for their brute strength. They don't need it. And, on, and yet, on the other hand, it's kind of buried under there. Think of the examples. Putin on horseback, I suppose. Is that an example? Is that is he showing his people his physical strength or the feeling that he's in shape? We admired John McCain when he ran for president the first time. A true war hero. A torture victim. Someone who had held up. There's something in us. There's a legacy of this. Something in us that admires physical strength and projects it onto our leaders. We didn't want a president in a wheelchair. We wanted to hide that. Public didn't want to see that. When 9-11 occurred, we suddenly admired firemen and first responders all over again, people of courage and physical accomplishments. We had a president flying a plane onto an aircraft carrier, getting out of the plane in a jumpsuit. Of course, we have movies with superheroes capable of going mano a mano with the bad guys or those fantasies, those fantasy movies where presidents take off the gloves and clear the plane of hijackers, fight with their fists. That's not really the world we live in. Our world is 
one where you can demonstrate your strength by pushing a button. It's all about courage now, resolve, intelligence, stamina. Was it physical stamina? Intellectual stamina. The stamina of burdens, taking burdens upon yourself. And part of this is because the world has changed. You conduct war remotely with drones and weapons that others deliver. Maybe not even humans deliver. Maybe someone in Florida looking at a computer screen, deciding what to bomb, what not to bomb. So part of that's part of it. The means of devastation and war and battles have changed. It's not hand-to-hand combat anymore. But it's also a difference. It's a difference in outlook. Remember Bonnie Tyler singing for a hero? from the movie Footloose. She sings the song over the footage of two men, Kevin Bacon and his rival, playing chicken on tractors. And our hero wins, but only because his shoelace has gotten caught in the pedal. That's so much more accurate today, right? To our conception of a hero to what we're looking for. We distrust confidence and boldness and courage and arrogance. Our heroes have a bit more sensitivity today. Their struggles are not against monsters. Their struggles are against concepts like hatred or their inward struggles. The effort to rise above one's own fear of failure or the negativity of a critic, a parent, someone keeping you down, some kind of handicap that must be overcome, that's much more likely to be our view of a hero today. Someone who can look life in all its horror, look it square in the eye, and nevertheless overcome some obstacle. Now, that's You might say we've just adapted because of the weaponry. Who needs a man with the grip of 30 men as Beowulf has when some weakling with a gun could take him out? That was an issue back then as well. Why do you need a Beowulf to come and kill your monster? Surely 30 of your thanes, a thane is a warrior, surely 30 thanes could attack him with swords, chop the monster to pieces, gang up. But no, our poet, our Beowulf poet, has thought about that. The poet says, the monster has cast a kind of spell that would prevent that. He had conjured away the harm from the cutting edge of every weapon. Hear that? Today we go out of our way to explain why two guys are fighting in the movies. Why doesn't one have a gun? (laughs) Maybe the gun has been knocked out of his hand. Or... Maybe he or she is out of bullets. Or they possess a kind of honor. They throw it on their weapons. Let's do this. Let's see who's stronger. We're going to fight with fists. Why? Why is that? It's because we still have this legacy. It's the legacy of the epic hero. 
We admire strength. Maybe it's natural. Maybe it's evolutionary. But the big difference, we don't select our leaders based on it. And that's going to tell you something about Beowulf, too. All the stuff that you would imagine today, all of the reasons to, to select your leader, it's not there in Beowulf. There are no political action committees in Beowulf. There's no fundraising, no lengthy debates of policy directions, intentions, no money spent on advertising, no political parties, no corporations. And in some ways, that's refreshing. That's fun, looking at humanity a level or two up from a state of nature, but certainly not at the level of a modern-day cosmopolitan nation. The 400 years between us and Shakespeare seems like a day compared with the 700 years between Shakespeare and Beowulf, as was the case with Gilgamesh. I find it inspiring to read about this world and draw parallels with our own. Fires up my imagination, and it's not just me. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote an appreciative essay on Beowulf. If you haven't guessed, (laughs) he liked it. (laughs) And then the Lord of the Rings. It's unimaginable without Beowulf, really. It's as if Tolkien took Beowulf, closed his eyes, and dreamed the rest of the details of that world into life. But this time around, as I read Beowulf, I couldn't help feeling that there was something very strange about reading Beowulf and imagining its society when we know of everything that came before. The Western world didn't start with Beowulf. It started hundreds of years earlier. Did the world take such a step backward? Did it sink into the muck and mud of brute strength and monsters? Did the people no longer wrestle with the many permutations of a single concept like justice or politics? Did Plato and Aristotle mean nothing to these people? The Bible plays a role here. Every time the Bible pops up in Beowulf, it jolts us out of the world of Gilgamesh and into a world that has, at a minimum, the Bible. Gilgamesh was pre-Bible. This one is all wrapped up in the Bible. It sort of serves as like this injection, an injection of something. Sometimes it's entertaining or interesting. I like that the poet tries to justify the monsters by saying they're descendants of Cain. (laughs) There are spots like that where the poet seems to be channeling Christianity for his audience, trying to appeal to them. That's what I can't quite get out of this. Can't quite figure it out. He's trying to explain Christianity, trying to proselytize in some form. It's not very strong in that way, if that's the case. Is he trying to reconcile Christianity with the pagan stories that were closer to his heart? or maybe closer to the expectations and preferences of the audience. They had the priest to give them Christianity. They wanted the poet to play the hits. Give us some of that old-time pagan song. Probably a combination of all of that. Multiple motives for the Beowulf poet. 
you have to think of this as playing the hits in some sense. The action here is designed to be told. It's designed to keep people, listeners, on the edge of their seat, so to speak. Beowulf goes after a monster. Then the monster's angry mother. Then a dragon. Three quests for the hero. Three chances to demonstrate his strength and courage and selflessness. That's an underappreciated aspect of the story and of our hero. The selflessness, sacrifice. There are plenty of strong and capable individuals throughout history in the Middle Ages or whenever, who did not act for the good of the people. But Beowulf, the poem, is clear, at least about that, as a value. The best kings give a lot of rings. They are ring givers. They build halls for lots of people to gather in and enjoy. The best kings get out there and fight the monsters. Maybe that's the metaphor we're looking for. The monsters are a metaphor for being willing to take risks on behalf of your people, to do so selflessly and with courage, with fortitude. That's Seamus Heaney's great phrase for the poem. He said he, when he was in college studying Beowulf, he fell in love with its melancholy and fortitude. We talked about the melancholy. That's the twilight, literal and figurative. The days gone by. Phrases like, that was a good king. From our poet. And it sounds like someone might talk about Abraham Lincoln. We'd put that in a poem, right? Maybe there's an aspect of this where it's the poet trying to preserve history, educate a little. You can imagine if you were writing an epic poem. You were talking about leaders. You were reflecting on the leaders of your own day, perhaps, maybe without stating it. Maybe that was the comparison you were drawing. We might say, Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves and saved the Union. He was intelligent and practical and sensitive and brave. Sigh. Now that was a good president. That was one good king. So I like that. I like the melancholy. I like the fortitude, which I take to mean the, the courage of the hero, but also the strength of the language. The solid words of the language, the Anglo-Saxon words. But in many ways, the poet doesn't give us enough. That's my biggest problem with Beowulf. We'll get to that. But listen to this. Here's another pet peeve of mine. Listen to the Norton Anthology. And I don't want to pick on them because I like the Norton Anthologies. I learn from them and I think they're a valuable addition to any bookshelf. But listen to this paragraph from their introduction to Beowulf. Here it says, The poem tells us of five primary feuds. The most important, which we learn about only toward the end of the poem, is between the Geats and the Swedes and takes place in two phases. The first phase begins when the Swedes, under their king Ongentiao, defeat the Geats in a battle at Hwasna Hill, or Sorrow Hill, in which great slaughter is committed by Ongentiao's sons, Othtir and Onela. This slaughter is then avenged by the killing of Ongentiao by the great Eofer in the Battle of Ravenswood, in which the Geatish king Haithinst also dies. 
The second phase of the Swedish-Gidish feud is initiated by a civil war within the Swedish royal family. After the death of his elder brother, Othir, Onella seizes the throne and drives out the rightful heirs, Othir's sons, Enmund and Eidgils. They find refuge with the Geats, then being led by Hygelec's son, Hirdred. Onella attacks the Geats, killing both... Ah! <laughs> That's just the first feud of five. I read... I just read ten lines or so of that paragraph. It goes on for ten more. That's just the first feud. There's four more being described. Who would want to read this? Norton Anthology. What kind of look at literature is that? It's almost designed to make you hate the poem before you read it. Who cares about the five feuds? Other than the fact that there were five feuds. There were a bunch of feuds. Isn't that enough? Couldn't they do that in a sentence? Beowulf has many feuds. It takes place in a world of feuds with families rivaling one another for the throne. We get it. Oh, sure. If you want to get into the history, great. By all means, if that's your thing, explore the five feuds, memorize all the names, dig into the family trees. This guy had a son. He had two sons. He split up his throne. They fought one another. Then another family came, grabbed the throne. That's fine. But this is page two of the introduction to Beowulf. My eyes are glazing over. This sounds like the most boring poem in the history of the world. Five feuds of names of people I don't care about. I don't know why I should care about them. I don't know who's who. I don't know if... Is this somebody good? Is somebody bad? Is is a civil war okay? Okay. A civil war? Who can't... You can't just say there was a civil war. You have to tell us who fought in the civil war. Why? What was at stake? All these people, they list for us living and dying and blah, blah, blah. That tells me nothing. Who was killed and why? Who did the killing? Was that an act of courage or cowardice? Who made these decisions and why did they make them and what was going on in their minds when they did? That's what I want to know. Everything else is just names and verbs and places. That's not literature. There are a hundred names on this page and exactly zero characters. Come on, Norton Anthology. You can do better. (laughs) So, that's my criticism of the apparatus around the poem, but it also tells you a little bit about what I want from literature. I want to know what people were doing and why. What was the context for these decisions? How does it compare with anything that matters to me? I have to make decisions. I have to decide whether to be brave or bold, courageous, or maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe I need to lie low. Move under the radar. Keep my nose clean. Stay out of trouble. Maybe I need to seize a throne or maybe not. Maybe I just need to to be a good person quietly. I can't tell anything from that paragraph. Ah. <sighs> 
here's my problem. I'm not just picking on the Norton Anthology just to pick on the Norton Anthology. Although they're big, they can take it. (laughs) Everything else has let me down. (laughs) God, America, the Norton Anthology. (laughs) It's a long line. Get in line. Here's the problem, though. Here's why I brought all this up. Here's why I indulged myself, got carried away. Because Beowulf is a little like that, too. My fear for Beowulf. Beowulf is a little bit like that, too. There's elements of it. They're a little bit like that. I'm not really the audience. Maybe that's the problem. Poet was writing for someone else. He wasn't writing for me. 1,200 years later. It was an oral poem. I get it. It had to keep the audience's attention. So it had to have a lot of action. That's fine. It also has a lot of other stuff. Not really giving me what I need. And it doesn't really dig into Beowulf the way I would like. I know what you're saying. Oh, sure. You're you're measuring it with hindsight. You're not giving the poet enough credit. You want Jane Austen. You want Alice Monroe. You want Shakespeare. Fine. Plato? Can I expect Plato? No. <laughs> Came hundreds of years before the Beowulf poet, but okay. I'll accept that. This is a different culture, a different society, different traditions, different needs of the audience. Different. And it's an oral tradition. I get it like an action movie. You can't compare an action movie to a great novel serving two different audiences. Hold that thought for a moment. The action movie, we'll get back to that because here's my other theory. What if what if the Beowulf poet just wasn't very good? We only have this manuscript. What if it was written by the dullest poet around? What if it survived by accident? 1,200 years from now, if they get one film, what if they don't get Citizen Kane or Lawrence of Arabia or The Godfather? What if they get Chopping Mall? Maybe the... (laughs) Maybe we got Chopping Mall. (laughs) Maybe there was a Godfather poem just sitting there. That one disintegrated or it's buried somewhere. Was burned. Maybe they never bothered to write that one down. Maybe we got Chopping Mall. (laughs) I feel like they're going to revoke my literature license. Has anyone ever compared Beowulf to Chopping Mall before? There are actually some parallels to be made there, I'm sure. Chopping Mall, which I'm sure you'll remember, is the movie where high-tech security robots go crazy after hours. The same night that eight teenagers have decided to spend the night in the mall. (laughs) There's three of them. Three of these high-tech security robots. Is that like the three monsters? Grendel, Grendel's mother, and the dragon? The teenagers look kind of Scandinavian. Maybe this was, maybe Beowulf was an influence. Chopping mall. 
Remember the poster? The slogan was, where shopping costs you an arm and a leg. An arm? Like Grendel? Pulled off by our hero, Beowulf? Is this... Actually, the the teenagers would be more like the Thanes waiting for the hero to arrive. I guess they weren't on the quest so much themselves. They were like the warriors who were victimized by these high-tech security robots who go haywire. Even though when the mall security people are deciding whether or not to, to buy the robots, they are assured by the salesman, absolutely nothing can go wrong. <laughs> that's, that's a line in the movie. Absolutely nothing can go wrong. Ah, boy. Shopping. Has some PhD dissertation been written about this yet? The Comparing Beowulf to Chopping Ball? Hmm? Or were you out there just waiting for Jack to give you the idea? Well, you're welcome, PhD candidate. <laughs> Set aside your Norton anthology and pick up a copy of Chopping Mall. So that's a theory I have. What if the poet just wasn't that interesting of a person? What if the Beowulf poet was was just not well equipped to do better? <laughs> It's blasphemous. Maybe there was another poet, a rival, who was much more interesting and sophisticated, who really built out characters with more than just physical strength. Maybe Beowulf isn't the only or even a very representative poem from the era. Maybe there were several that dug deeper, that told us who these people really were and what was in their innermost hearts, their secret dreams and fears. Maybe there were narratives that weren't about strong men going after dragons and monsters which they knew was all made up. It's kind of an insult to the audience today. We read the stories and think, oh, how quaint. This world where people believed in a monster's mother living at the bottom of the sea. Well, maybe they didn't. Maybe that's just the Beowulf poet who was obsessed with this stuff. Maybe the others were spinning out lines that wouldn't make the audience seem like a bunch of children believing in fairy tales. Maybe there were narratives by other poets that would talk about a king who had a bad advisor who made the king really jealous and the king went out and killed his wife in a fit of jealousy. Maybe there was one with the psychology of two brothers who love one another but are pitted against each other by the different needs of their people. The pressures on you, the inner struggles, the dilemmas of being alive and human and trying to lead but feeling conflicted loyalties. Maybe those plots were available to these people. Maybe the psychological richness of the leaders. Maybe it wasn't all invented by Shakespeare. Maybe it was there in Beowulf's time. Maybe the people thought things like that. Just didn't survive. Just didn't get written down. Or if it did get written down, it just got destroyed. Maybe that's what happened. Maybe all those ideas, all that mind activity, maybe that was available to these people. Maybe that's how they lived and talked and understood one another. 
But the Beowulf poet just didn't capture it because he wasn't that interested. Maybe he's not a genius that we should revere. Maybe he was relatively a dullard. Maybe. Maybe, maybe. But that's not the history of literature that you'll read in a book. You'll read in the book that it's Old English. The poem is in Old English, and that's true. And that the poem tells us about their society of feuds and struggles against nature, which is also true. You can imagine a Proust of the Middle Ages. There's no evidence of one. What's in their minds? I don't think we have to limit ourselves to what we see in Beowulf. We can imagine. And if we, when we do imagine based on Beowulf, we also don't have to limit ourselves to that. We don't have to take Beowulf and try to fill in gaps. We can take the archaeological evidence and our own imagination, our own knowledge of the world, what came before Beowulf and what came after, and we can imagine a culture much richer than the one we find in Beowulf. Beowulf is an anchor, and in particular, it's a beautiful anchor of the words, of the language. That doesn't mean it has to tie us down. We could shift our metaphor, make it something other than an anchor. That language, language of blood and body and earth and love and life, words like that, words with heft, that language can shine like gold. It can let us see the face of God. And it can let us dream into life a character as rich as any in Shakespeare. We can understand Beowulf as the action movie version of this society and this culture and its character as the protagonist with just enough motive to make the action scenes make sense, just enough character to be interesting, clumsy if compared with a Shakespeare or an Alice Munro, but that's fine. It was good for its audience. The artistry is there. When you consider the audience drinking their mead, maybe not listening very carefully, looking for a good story, good action. The poet delivers. That's fine. Europeans of that era didn't have popcorn, but that's okay. Because with Beowulf, we know they had, at a minimum, in my opinion, The equivalent of a popcorn movie. Ah, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature, Beowulf. (laughs) Oh, how did I run off the rails on that one? You should definitely read the Seamus Heaney translation if you haven't already. Don't mistake my negativity for a suggestion that you should skip this one. It's a great work. Everyone should dive right in. Think good thoughts. Stay alert and glean from it what you can. You'll enjoy the language. Maybe read it a couple of times, just maybe not four or five. (laughs) Move on to other things, unless you're really getting something out of it. It's one of the strangest things. I know I'm going to get emails about this. People telling me, what are you, what are you attacking Beowulf for? It's my favorite poem. 
Well, by all means, read it, enjoy it, read it again and again. Be my guest. If you would like to support the show, then I would like to give you that chance. That's my ring giving. (laughs) I can be a giver of rings. I'm going to give you the chance to support the show. Or maybe I'm the humble thane, the one weighed down by armor. Only in this case, I have no armor. And the only thing weighing on me are debts and the feeling of guilt I would have if I stopped doing this show and my love for you. Is this, this is terrible. Might as well go back to Oliver Twist begging for gruel. Let me start over. If you would like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash literature. There you can sign up for a small monthly donation starting at just $1 a month. And at other levels, you can get nice things like a history of literature mug or a history of literature tote bag. Visit patreon.com slash literature to learn more. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash literature. My thanks to the Beowulf poet for being a good sport and to Beowulf for cleaning the house of monsters. Now I can lock the door and celebrate in peace. Raise a mug of mead. To all of you, I hope you're finding some security in your world as well. And some books and some literature, they can take you on incredible journeys. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.